Good morning, Cornerstone Church. I am Pastor Bill, and Danny's already said it, Bo's already said it, but I want to say the same thing. It's so good to be together with all of you. I actually love Psalm 122, verse 1 says, I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It's just good week after week to be together, loving each other, loving God, and listening to God's word and God's will and God's ways and, and marveling at God's wonders and praising God for the gift of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We do that each week as we gather. So welcome to Cornerstone Church, those of you who are new. Welcome back, students. How many are returning students? Raise your hand so we see where you all are. Your hands are really like, can you put your hands up? Welcome back, students, and, um, and welcome everyone to a new ministry year here at Cornerstone. The upheavals and the transitions of the last few years, COVID, racial reckoning, other reckonings in our world and in the church and at Cornerstone, those upheavals and disruptions have been significant. This last week, Marla and I were in Ohio. I had told you that we went to meet our, our newest granddaughter, and you'll see a picture of there of her there. That's me holding her. I kept looking. I mean, she's maybe the smallest baby I ever held. At four weeks, she was just about six pounds. And I kept looking at her tiny little fingers and toes as I was praying for her. And, um, and I started a new book because when, you have, when you're holding a baby, you can't do it. We call babies in our family, we call them immunity idols because you don't have to set the table. You don't have to do dishes. You don't have to do anything if you're holding the baby and keeping it quiet. So I started a new book this last week while I was holding Izzy, um, and it's a book by an Australian author, and the title is A Non-Anxious Presence, and the author is Mark Sayers. And Sayers observes that the pandemic, cultural change, political polarization, and technological disruption have rapidly altered the world we live in at a breakneck speed. Most understand that the world has changed. However, the sheer rate of change has left many disoriented. We have been left with a sense of the potent chaos in the world. We are not as in control as we thought. We are left with questions of how to live at such a time when the rules all seem to have changed. So interestingly, now that we're getting a little further from all of that disruption, and we're not out of it, we're not out of it, but as we're getting further into it and a little bit beyond it, more and more spiritual leaders are, are reflecting on what this has done to us. At the very beginning of the, the pandemic, we shared a poem around here that you have not just been infected by the pandemic, but you've been exposed by the pandemic. In the middle of it, we were just all swimming and trying to figure out how do we even stay above water. Now there's been a little bit more reflection, and Mark Sayers is one of those leaders who has, has looked at history and seen that times of disillusion and disruption are very often times of when God is planting seeds of renewal in his people. So he looked back at wars and pandemics, previous pandemics, other times when there has been dramatic cultural chaos. And he sees a pattern that those are times when God's people are getting infused with deeper desires for justice and mercy, 
for truth and goodness and for renewal and reconstruction of their faith. He calls them times, those times gray zones. And it's interesting as, as we are reflecting on the gray zone that we're in, and it, gray zones are complicated and they're conflicted, all right? Reflecting on the gray zones in the past and this gray, gray zone that we're in, we realize that the church can no longer look away from the huge issues going on in the culture around us. For decades, the church could do our thing here and then look away of everything that was going on out there. What's happened through this chaos, we realize no more looking away. We've got to boldly run towards the greatest disorientation, the greatest disruption, the greatest polarizations. We've got to move towards them if we want to experience the power and presence of God in our lives and in the world. So, the end of this last summer, we looked at scriptures that orient and ground us in times of disruption and disillusionment in the gray zones. And we're beginning this fall looking at the Sermon on the Mount to see how Jesus deconstructs and reconstructs faith. In the um, one theologian says this, oh, I, so I've been saying this whole last month, I am personally invested in deconstructing and reconstructing my own faith because I really want a better world and I want a better church and I want a better me. So one theologian writes this, he says, in the history of Christian thought, indeed in the history of those observing Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount has been considered an epitome of the teaching of Jesus and therefore for many, the essence of Christianity. Another theologian writes, the more I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the more I read these three chapters, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight, but the light is so bright that it sears and burns. No room is left for forms of piety, which are nothing more than veneer and sham completeness is demanded. So today, as we look at Matthew chapter 5, I want us to see Jesus's pattern for deconstructing and reconstructing faith in a gray zone that he was living in in his day. And the pattern is not complicated at all. It's a pattern that we should see so that we follow it when we're in our gray zones. And the pattern's very simply this. Time after time, seven times in, um, in Matthew chapter five, we see this pattern where Jesus says, you have heard it said, dot, dot, dot. But I say to you, dot, dot, dot. And that pattern in the Sermon on the Mount is a pattern for us to follow when we are reconstructing our faith. We have heard it said, this, 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 and this about these kinds of things. But what does Jesus say about these things. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 21, Jesus insists that godliness and goodness still matter. In verses 17 to 20, we don't see the actual words you have heard it said, but it's in the background because we, we see how Jesus is responding. So if the words were there, it would be something like, you have heard it said that holiness doesn't matter anymore because somehow Jesus has come to abolish the law. But what Jesus says is this, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, that's the second part of the pattern, Jesus, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. In a nutshell, the law and the prophets were given to us to train us to be holy, to train us to live the truly good life, to train us to walk in righteousness. That is the purpose of the law and the prophets. But people in Jesus' day were saying, yeah, it's not that important. I mean, yeah, follow the big commandments. Don't worry about the other ones. The little sins don't matter. It's not that big a deal. It's just kind of boring to live a holy life. So if this were in Boston, it would be something like this. You're in Boston now and on your own, away from your parents. Live it up a little bit. A little sin here and a little sin there won't hurt you. Or you're a young adult and the world is your oyster. Sin's not that big a deal. Everybody's doing it. Living a holy life is boring. Just quit thinking that you have to be so good and so holy. But when Jesus reconstructs faith, this is what Jesus says. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then his next sentence, he's like he could have written it today. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the religious leaders that are found, the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If in our reconstructed faith, we do not become more holy in the way we live, then we are not reconstructing a Christian faith because when Jesus reconstructs it, holiness still matters. When we keep the law, one of my, um, my mentors was Dallas Willard. He wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And he said this, when we keep the law, we step into God's ways and we drink God's power. So the first thing Jesus says here is holiness still matters. Then next in verses 21 to 26, Jesus addresses the quality of our relationships when we're reconstructing our faith. So Jesus says, you have heard it said, there's the pattern, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The idea is as long as you're not murdering people, it doesn't matter how you treat them, right? I didn't murder them. Jesus goes on to say that, um, that we, can't, we, can't, we can't land there. And what Jesus says specifically, he says, but I say to you, the pattern again, you've heard it said to those of old, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The world tells us that relationships can be thrown away. The world tells us that if people disagree with us, we can, can, can throw them out and ignore them and dismiss them. But Jesus says in the reconstructed faith that, that is his, Jesus says relationships matter. Anger, wrath, insults, disdain, mocking, bullying, dismissing, ignoring, gossiping, meanness, slandering, damaging people's reputations is the moral equivalent of murder. And we are liable for that sin. Jesus says our relationships with each other 
matter as much as our relationship with God. If we have brokenness horizontally with each other, then we will have brokenness between us and God. And this is what Jesus says. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, you're at worship, right? You're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Those are both really sharp commands. Leave your gift at the altar and go. Very sharp commands by Jesus. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come offer your gift. The Apostle Paul comments on this teaching when he says in Romans chapter 12, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. And then the Apostle John also comments on the same theme in 1 John 1, 7. If we walk with Jesus in the light, we will have true fellowship with one another. So in Jesus' reconstructed faith, being a Christ follower means that we practice the spiritual discipline of go and reconcile before we practice the spiritual discipline of come and worship. Go and reconcile precedes come and worship. In Jesus' reconstructed faith, the breach between us cannot be healed, or the breach between us and God, this one, the breach between us and God cannot be healed to the breach between us horizontally is addressed and healed. So Cornerstone Church, as we embark on this new ministry year, if we really do a good job of living life together, we're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to sometimes sin against each other. We are going to sometimes wound each other. We are going to have disruption in our relationships. If we have a reconstructed faith like Jesus's, then we will not abandon those relationships. We will do everything within our power to address them. And if we can't do it one-on-one -on -one with a person, we'll find some trusted Christian friends who will come together and help us to resolve our issues because we will do everything in our power to fix the brokenness in our relationships so that we can experience fullness in our worship. Then, in verses 5, 27 to 30, Jesus addresses our sexuality and he talks about lust. Yes, in Jesus' reconstructed faith, he goes there. Jesus says this. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes to hell. Our culture, the world, media, the church, sometimes our Christian friends, our, we are told so many things about sexuality. So many things. Most of it is stupid. Much of what we've heard about sex and sexuality is spiritually damaging and relationally damaging to us. So here's some things. You're, you can fill in the blanks for you. We've heard it said that um, it's passe to save sex for marriage. Almost nobody does that anymore. Some of us have heard from our romantic partner that if you don't have sex with me, I will leave you. 
Some of us have heard that it doesn't matter what we do sexually as long as we don't have intercourse. So oral sex and other forms of sexual um, activity, they don't matter that much. Some of us have heard that porn isn't all that bad. Some of us have heard that sexual sin committed against us is our fault. Some of us have heard that once we lose our virginity, it doesn't matter what we do anymore because we're already damaged goods. What, I mean, you've heard those messages from the media and the culture and sometimes within the church and within your family. So many people today are wounded in their sense of being because of sexual sin either committed against them or committed with their consent. In Cornerstone Church, over the years, I've learned that God doesn't give us guidelines about sexuality to deprive us or control us. God gives us guidelines about sexuality to protect us and to bless us. God is so good that he gives us the gift of sexuality and then teaches us how to express it so that we can be blessed and protected. So what does Jesus say about sexuality? Jesus says, sexual sanity and wholeness doesn't revolve around following rules. I just want you to see this. This is a theme that goes through the Sermon on the Mount, and it's so clear here. Sexual sanity and wholeness doesn't revolve around following a set of rules. Jesus doesn't ask us to follow moral rules about our sexuality. Jesus asks us to develop moral character around our sexuality. Sexual wholeness and sanity, God-honoring sexuality, is less about our genitals and more about our character. Please see that Jesus asks for moral character, not check a box, I didn't do this, so I'm okay. In Cornerstone Church, I'm a whole lot older than all of you. Um, can I encourage you to see your pathway of character development around sexual purity, to see it as a lifelong commitment? Developing a God-honoring sexuality doesn't happen because you heard a sermon or you read a book or you confessed your sins one more time. Developing a God-honoring sexuality is a lifelong journey of pursuing sexual purity, failing sometimes, confessing, asking for forgiveness, receiving forgiveness, receiving purity again from Jesus, and never giving up on developing a God-honoring sexuality. Jesus says a reconstructed faith has to address our sexuality. Uh, just a quick footnote here. If you have sexual brokenness or sexual trauma in your life, please do not try to heal all on your own. Our sexuality is at so much at the core of who we are that Satan wants to wound us at the core of who we are in our sexuality and he wants to bind us to our wounds for decades to torment us. Very few people can heal from sexual brokenness and sexual trauma on their own. So, talk to an older godly Christian. Talk to a therapist. Talk to one of your pastors. We have helped over the years scores and scores of people heal from brokenness and refine um, sexual wholeness. So, um, bottom line, a reconstructed faith that does not address the purity of our sexuality, it's not a Christian faith. 
All right, we don't have time to go through all the points in, in Matthew 5. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus says we've heard a lot of things about divorce. He says a lot of things that are not true. Jesus does say there are things worse than divorce, than divorce but not many of them. And I'm convinced that the confidence of permanence in Christian marriage, and there are all kinds of different marriages, marriage in the world these days. Christian marriage is a particular kind of marriage. The confidence in the permanency of Christian marriage is what gives us the courage and the ability to unmask the deepest stuff in us that needs to be transformed because we know we will not be abandoned. So Jesus says certain things about divorce and marriage and our commitment there. And then in, um, in verses 33, 37, Jesus talks about um, how we've all heard a lot of things about lying is expectable and white lies are not that bad. Um, but Jesus says that, that our yes is to be yes and our no is to be no. We are supposed to be people of our word. In other places, Jesus says that the words that come out of our mouth are direct reflection of what's in our hearts. Nothing can come out of our mouths that isn't already in our hearts. And so Jesus makes sure that we know that our words matter. Verses 38 to 32, Jesus speaks about how we respond to personal injustices. Interesting, here Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You do something bad to me, I do something bad back to you, but it has to be in proportion to how bad it was that you did to me. You have heard that said, fair is fair, right? But Jesus goes on and says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. What? But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Do you see the kind of character that Jesus wants us to develop? So that when we are treated badly, we return blessings for curses, not curses for curses, because we have so come to embody the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the faith that Jesus wants us to reconstruct. When you are cursed and when you are treated badly, Jesus wants you to be the kind of person who will return blessings and prayer for those who have maligned you. And Jesus goes on in the next verses, verses 43 to 48, and he simply says that the faith that he's reconstructing, in that faith, we love our enemies. We love our enemies. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. In Jesus' reconstructed faith, we do not hate our enemies. We love them and we seek to bless them. That says mountains of things for people who are your polar opposites in politics, in, in the way they think about life and how it's supposed to be lived. It changes the way you think about the enemies of your nation. 
Jesus says that his people will be the kind of people who love their enemies because their hearts have been that transformed so that we look like Jesus who loved his enemies to redeem us. Verses 43 to 48 ends with verse 48 that says this, you therefore must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. How can we possibly be perfect like God is perfect? When I was in college, I actually came across this verse and I got really, really, really mad at God because I wanted to be good, I wanted to be transformed, but I figured out there was no way that I could be perfect like God was perfect. And I remember I actually went to my pastor as a college student at Wheaton College, went to my pastor and I said, I'm really ticked at God for this verse. And he said, Bill, let me explain to you what that verse means. And, um, and first he explained that the word teleos, the Greek word for perfect, would probably be better rendered complete. So be complete as your heavenly father is complete. And then he told me that the tense of that verb wasn't a one and done finished thing. It's not like be perfect. You know, you have to be a perfect person like God is a perfect God. He says what that, that tense is, is an ongoing continual tense. So better translated and understood as be continually becoming more complete like your Father in heaven is complete. Again, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't give us rules to check. It gives us moral character to develop. Be continually becoming all that God wants you to be, complete in the way that God shows us to be complete. All right, one more thing and then we'll wrap up. Um, I'd like us to end by listening to what Jesus says in verses 13 to 16. But before I read the verses, I'd like to pause for a moment and have you reflect on what the world, the flesh, and the devil have told you about you. What has the world told you about you? What has, have your parents told you about you? What have your peers told you about you? What has your school told you about you? What has the world told you about you? Some of us have been told that we are too insignificant to make a real difference in the world. Some of us are told that we're too young to make a difference. And FYI, that will change later and people will just say you're too old to make a difference. Some of us have been told that we are too much to handle, or we're too quiet to be heard, or we're too loud to be respected. Maybe you've been told, or maybe you've told yourself, that you're inadequate, you're a failure, you're not good enough, you're lazy, your grades are not high enough because you're not smart enough, or you're not working hard enough. Some of us have been told, verbally or non-verbally, that we're not white enough, not Asian enough, not black enough, not Hispanic enough, not American enough, not Korean enough, too Korean, too Chinese, not Chinese, and fill in the blank for your ethnicity and your nationality. Some of us have been told we're not masculine enough, or feminine enough, or good looking enough, or beautiful enough, or we're not strong enough to make a difference. The world, the flesh, and the devil constantly tells us usually one of two things. We're too much to handle or we're not enough to be adequate and sufficient. But what does Jesus say 
about who you are. Listen and take to heart these words from Jesus. When he says who you are in contrast to what you may have heard or told yourself is true about you. This is Matthew 5 verses 13 to 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. If salt loses its taste, how shall, it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Number one, you are the salt of the earth. Number two, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a blanket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Christian, the world will say, has said, and will say many things to you about who you are. But Jesus says two things. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. My whole life I have read these verses and I felt guilty that I wasn't salty enough and I wasn't light enough. And I know that God wants me to be saltier and he wants me to be lightier. Okay, I know that. But this week as I read those verses, I didn't hear judgment. I heard affirmation of what Jesus says in contrast to what the world tells me about me. Who will you listen to to define who you are? Wherever God sends us, today, this week, this ministry year, school, work, home, community, small group, in person, online, wherever God sends you, Christian, Jesus says that you are the salt of the world. You are there to, to preserve, to, to hold back the rottenness and preserve what is good. You are there to bring flavor to life. You are the light of the world to make darkness flee by being truly good people, doing truly good things because your character has been transformed by Jesus. We root out racism and injustice and every form of abuse. We stand against sin and for godliness and for purity. We root out corruption and promise integrity for the common good. We contribute to the flourishing of people and planet. We shine a light on what is good and true and lovely and noble and beautiful. Jesus doesn't say you might be the salt of the earth and you might be the light of the world. He says to you, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Let's believe what Jesus says to define who we are. In his book on the Sermon on the Mount that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, famous, famous book called The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer calls these verses the visible community. And in that chapter he writes, the disciples of Jesus are the highest good, the supreme value, which the earth possesses. For without them, the world cannot live. Without you being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, our world cannot thrive. It cannot live. So, Cornerstone Church, I've watched you for eight years, millennials and Gen Zers, and um, I've watched you be salt and light. The city and places where we spread, we send cornerstone people all over the world. Where you go is better because you are there. So let's let our light shine before others so that they can see the good things that we do and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we, we, we come to the Sermon on the Mount and, and we are drawn and we're also seared because you give us such absolute and uncompromising. You give us a call to, to moral character. Not character that gets, gets fixed. Not character that gets perfect because we read another book or lived another year of our life or married the right person or got the right job. But moral character to be like Jesus and be becoming more like Jesus day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade for the rest of our lives. Lord Jesus, thank you that, that we have absolutely clearly here what your reconstructed faith is supposed to look like. Help us, everyone who is hearing this message, help us to be who we are, the salt of the earth and the light of the world so that you receive all of the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.